This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Lowe's knows you'll do it right and do it yourself to make refreshing changes to your kitchen and bath. We do it right, too, with up to 40% off select kitchen and bath essentials during the final days of our Refresh for Less kitchen and bath event. That's up to 40% off faucets, vanities, shower heads, and more. For kitchen and bath updates that keep you within budget, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offer valid through 3-6. See store for details, U.S. only. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. My name is Dan Favalli, coming at you this time without my co-host, Andrew D. Bailey. I am, however, super pleased to be joined by longtime friend of the pod, Adam Spinella. He is an assistant men's basketball coach at Washington and Jefferson College, and he is also a writer for the Basketball Writers. You can follow them at B-Ball Writers. They've had some good, their their launch, their, their site just launched semi-recently, and they've had some good content being pushed out, and you're able to support some really fantastic scribes, including Adam himself, who has long been one of my favorite writers and basketball minds to uh, both read and, and really just pick his brain whenever he comes on this podcast. So I'm excited to just go around the league a little bit with him, uh, get some straight thoughts on what's going on with Washington following the the Trevor Ariza trade, LeBron's comments on Anthony Davis. We'll touch on those and just the Western Conference in general. There might be some Dave Yeager, Luka Doncic talk too, since this podcast has a lot to catch up on um, news bite wise. But first, we have to ask the question that we ask all of our guests. Adam, how are you doing? Dan, Rivers, and Favalis. I'm doing great, man. It's, uh, <laughs> it's awesome to be back here on the pod. Always enjoy chatting with you and, uh, and just excited to, to talk about what's going on around the league right now. Um, yeah, there's the, the league is weird right now. Uh, we didn't get to talk about Andy and I, the Trevor Ariza trade after it happened. There was the whole, that three team fiasco was absolutely fantastic with, uh, Memphis thinking it was trading Marshawn Brooks, Phoenix thinking it was acquiring Dylan Brooks. I was totally there for it. Uh, I know a lot of people think that it was Memphis that really tried to pull a fast one, but I could very easily see it just being a, a terrible game of telephone be- between Washington and everyone else, since it seemed like the Wizards were the ones that coordinated that deal. And in the end, it goes through anyway, with Phoenix getting Kelly Oubre Jr., who I still kind of like. Uh, I don't know that I could say I'm on an island with him because I believe he has a lot of support- supporters, but I like what he can do defensively. Um, I think he's shown some stuff at different points off the dribble, and if he could ever just get a, a consistent three-point shot, he, he could end up being a really good player. They also acquired Austin Rivers, the Suns did, and they promptly waived him uh, in what was a, a super puzzling move. It wasn't even a buyout, and they could have held on to him and tried to use him um, in another deal while he couldn't have been aggregated with another player, that his salary would have been a nice little tool for filler matching. So uh, what what do you kind of make of this trade from Phoenix's side. And then I think more, more pointedly, what does it really mean for Washington who, as we record this are, are coming off a, a loss to the Atlanta Hawks? Does it make it less likely that they move on from one of their core three at this point, less likely that they make a substantial change to the roster or is this sort of, Hey, a last ditch effort to see what we can do. If it comes closer to the February trade deadline and we're still in the playoff race and we're still struggling, we still have the option of blowing it up. Yeah, at the end of the day, uh, I think it marginally moves the Wizards closer towards competing or, or being a, uh, a playoff team this year. You know, I don't think they were getting a lot of traction out of Austin Rivers and, and the fit with him and, and Wall and Beal, two guys that really need to, to play through on the offense, just wasn't really working. Um, but again, it's one of those things where Ariza 
not really sure what he adds that Otto Porter really doesn't. So for me, it, it's it, it's a decently lateral move for Washington. It does give them another expiring contract for this year. And, uh, you, you know, I don't think that they were enamored with Kelly Oubre. So for them, I, I think it just gives them another opportunity to grab somebody that they liked uh, a little bit as a player. But I'm not... I'm not really sure if, if they're going to be more inclined or less inclined to move a guy like Porter or Beal. I, I still think Wall's pretty much untradeable this year, um, but I, I don't know if they're more or less likely to move on from anybody. It would probably be if they do Porter, right? Just because you have Ariza, as you could justify as his replacement. And in theory, while there's a lot of value in Otto Porter because of his just universal plug-and-play fit, that also, in a sense, makes him a little easier to replace yeah that's a, that's a fair point i think um i think a lot of teams are gonna probably pick up the call pick up the phone and call about beal more than they are about porter just because i oh, think he's sure. a, a, a higher impact player and and if you're washington you have to kind of look at your cap situation and say look we're going to be over the 100 million mark with our roster as it is right now i mean they have one two three four five they have 10 free agents next year uh, they only have five or six you know contracts are going to be on the books and they're already over 100 million they need to start thinking about ways to slim down the cap if they really do decide to blow things up with their core right now um and i think beal nets them a little bit higher of a return which is why i would think that maybe they they listen to to calls about him but i still don't think washington is uh going to make a move i think they're a little bit too stubborn to say hey let's blow this thing up and and in their division right now where nobody is taking a uh claim to the top spot and really looking to, you know, break away from the pack. They could very easily end up with a, a five or a six seed in the East. Yeah, it's. I would almost say that would be the reason why they wouldn't entertain more calls for Bill. They'll get more calls for him, but you have to demand more for him. Where I think with Otto Porter, maybe you can get out of the final year of his contract while picking up because he has two years left after this one. So maybe you get an expiring contract for him. Maybe you get someone with a year left on his deal and and while being attached kind of to a pick uh, that would just be it, it seems like their path to getting under the tax this season giving them some breathing room this summer without completely torpedoing their nucleus because as you said they're not really in a position to do that if only because John Wall's trademark it has to be close to non-existent I know people think that the, the Pistons or the Suns might trade for him uh, I actually don't think Phoenix would do that maybe they get super desperate over the summer or something but I can't see them going that route right now. There's a case to be made for the Pistons if they're getting off Reggie Jackson, but when you have so much money committed to Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin, you're really playing with more fire if you do that. And that sort of leaves, I don't even know if you can talk yourself into Miami at this point. They certainly have the MO of a team that could get desperate or if you want to call it aggressive enough to make that deal. But if you're not going to move wall, you're not really in a position to tear this thing down because as overpaid as he is, he's still a really good player. Right. Right, and and I don't know if he is good enough to make the the Wizards a playoff team without both Beal or Porter. So um, again, I think Beal is the best player on this team. If I'm Washington, I don't want to move him, especially if I don't see a full on teardown coming. But um, you know, the Ariza trade a little bit of a head scratcher for me. I, I like him. I like what he does, and he's going to be sought after on the free agent market this year on kind of a, a last ditch contract for him. But I mean, on a side note, what was he really thinking signing, signing with Phoenix over the summer? I mean, he lost the control to kind of choose where he goes. He was in Houston last year, signed for that last big paycheck in Phoenix, spent, what, all of two months there, and now he's in dysfunctional D.C. So I don't know how that worked out for him. Well, I think he's always been someone, which I respect, who just goes after the bag when you look at kind of how he's handled free agency <laughs> yeah. in the past. And there had to be something – of an agreement where if we're not really in it by, you know, December, January, even we'll deal you. And then when that kind of coupled with what seemed like him putting forth these lackadaisical efforts, um, uh, per the reports that are coming out now, that might've just made it an easier decision. So now he gets his bag and his thought process was, well, what team that isn't a bona fide playoff team is going to deal for me. Lo and behold, you have the wizards wizarding all over the place. And so maybe that aspect of it backfired for him. Yeah, I, I thought for sure he was uh, he was of the the mindset that he would end up in L.A. at some point. But. It's amazing that the talk was he would be bought out by Phoenix at some point, and then it quickly turned to um, 
just just the trade. It was before the season. It was like, oh, he'll be bought out, and then he'll go back to Houston or something like that. So it's it's kind of bizarre how how quickly that turned. Yeah, but Phoenix, I mean, they're not in the business of taking guys that are on expiring contracts or sought after veterans and really milking them for much. I mean, they just released Tyson Chandler. They were they you know waived Austin Rivers like they didn't do anything with Daryl Arthur like they're not they're not in the business of trying to milk assets out of every single piece that they can get right now for whatever reason I don't know um but it, yeah it's 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 strange that again they they flipped Ariza didn't get a pick really all they have is Ubre but that there was even conversation about a buyout in the first place uh, sort of moving on, the other thing that happened that I found fascinating was Dave Yeager, who has seemingly been at odds with the Kings front office all year, uh, made some interesting comments about Luka Doncic a couple days ago, saying perhaps, this is per ESPN's Tim McMahon, Yeager said, perhaps there was an idea that there was a ceiling on him. I don't see it, unfortunately, for us, but he's great for them and he's great for our league. Uh, Yeager tried to clarify his comments thereafter, saying he wasn't taking um, a shot at Marvin Bagley, and he went as far as calling him and De'Aaron Fox uh, the next Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, basically, which was a, an interesting way to sort of make up for that. I almost read it as, not that Jaeger's trying to get fired, but he has to know he's untouchable because the Kings, if if they weren't in the playoff hunt, if they weren't above 500, if they weren't near 500, if they weren't in the vicinity of this postseason fray, they could easily justify firing him, but even if he's being sort of disobedient or just objecting everything that the front that office, the front says, office or does, says or does, it's really hard really for hard. them to do anything when when he's winning with this team right now. Yeah, uh, you know, Dan, there's um, there's something called a backpedal, and that's when you you do something wrong or say something you probably shouldn't say, and then you have to turn around, run the other direction, and get yourself back to safety. And calling De'Aaron Fox and Marvin Bagley the next Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant is as large of a backpedal as I've seen from a coach that is a fantastic coach. I mean, Steve Kerr made some comments the other day about Dave Yeager before the uh, the Kings-Warriors matchup about what an awesome job that he's done changing his identity as a, as a coach. You know, he came in with a great defensive philosophy in Memphis and was a, a big part of that there. And now the Kings have been a dynamo on the offensive end. I mean, Yeager is a really, really good coach, but that's probably a little bit of hot water for him in, in Sacramento to say what he did about Doncic because you know that ownership in the front office are super, super sensitive there. The one of the things that's been talked about with that too is how the front office wants him to play Bagley more, and Bagley's been playing more compared to where he was at the beginning of the season. I don't think his minutes are necessarily too low. If if you had an issue with how slowly he was bringing along uh, Harry Giles, that's one thing. Uh, but it's bizarre that that would be the stance in Sacramento's front office because you know then that those minutes are going to come at the expense of Willie Cauley Stein or Bielitsa, who you just signed over the summer and is shooting a zillion percent from three and who has this profound impact on Sacramento spacing this year, just what it does to open the floor yep. for De'Aaron Fox and, and even open the floor um, for their bigs, including Bagley or, or Willie Cauley-Stein. That would be such a weird hill for Sacramento's front office to die on for me. If you don't want Jaeger to play someone like that specifically, then why did you sign him? Right. Yeah, one hundred percent. Couldn't could not agree more with that. And and part of it too is just the the mixed messages coming from their ownership and front office of, you know, they traded all of those draft picks and put themselves in horrible situations so that they could try to turn the corner a little bit quicker. And this year they finally are. But it seems like the first time the front office is saying, well, no, we want you to to turn the corner while playing our young guys that we've invested in and and you know the few draft picks that we have felt that we've done a really good job on. And it, it's crazy to me because you take a look at the young players on this roster. I mean, Buddy Heald is awesome right now. De'Aaron Fox is close to all-star caliber. I mean, he has really turned it on in his second season. And there's a bunch of other intriguing young guys. I mean, Scalabissier, Harry Giles. There's a bunch of guys that you could say justify giving a few more minutes to and trying to see what they turn into. Uh, I don't know why... The front office seems to push back a little bit on how Jaeger, you know, handles his minutes when he has 
four, five, maybe six young big men that he has to juggle. De'Aaron Fox, by the way, something I never would have predicted, on 2.1 pull-up three-point attempts per game, he's shooting 37.1% this year on pull-up threes. And that's not, 2.1 pull-up threes per game is not insubstantial volume. Kind of a random note, but it's something I continue to go back to uh, because his percentage just hovered uh, in the high 30s pretty much all season. And so at some point, you know, we're getting to the halfway mark. You almost have to accept it as the new normal and not necessarily a flash in the pan. Yeah, and, and he and Buddy Heald are probably the two best players we don't talk about much from a, a league standpoint. I know everybody's kind of sitting around waiting for Sacramento to fall back in the standings and saying, eh, this is probably a little bit of a fluke. But those two guys are a legitimate backcourt tandem that's going to be around for a long, long time in Sacramento. They're really good together. Buddy Heald was one of my players to watch for in the most improved player race. I don't think you can really give him any love there this season, and a lot of that I think is because of how well De'Aaron Fox has played and Cauley Stein has played, Amon Shumper, Bielitsa. You're just getting so much production everywhere. He hasn't needed to make the leap, but he's still been really good for them. Yeah, so- and and his, his role is pretty simple. He knows who he is, and the Kings use him in that way. They don't ask him to do too much. Fox creates most of everything for him, and like you mentioned, the the spacing that they have when Bielitsa is on the floor and what they are able to do based on that is is fantastic. I mean, and even Bogdanovich for them, too, uh, coming back from injury, yeah. he's been, he's just been, the whole team is just solid. What I guess is, it's kind of a twofold question. Uh, if you look at their upcoming stretch, and I don't know if you've had a chance to, yep. to take a look, they have, this is their next nine games, versus Oklahoma City, versus Memphis, versus New Orleans, at the Clippers, versus the Lakers, at the Lakers, versus the Blazers, versus the Nuggets, versus the Warriors. Now, it probably helps that only two of those nine games are on the road, but this is probably a make-or-break stretch for them, and I still tilt toward them missing the playoffs, and so I'm wondering where you are on that. And then if that's if you agree, do you think that Dave Yeager will last the entire season if the Kings do fall out of the West playoff picture? I do. I think he's proven himself to be a good enough coach, uh, and I don't think that he should be on the hot seat. That said, trying to trying to predict what Vlade Divac and Vivek <laughs> Renteve are doing is uh, don't forget uh, Brandon Williams either. That's that's not a game for the mentally sane. Uh, so I, I don't want to be guessing exactly what their thought process is. But Jaeger is not the issue in Sacramento, one hundred percent. It's a brutal stretch of the schedule for them, and. You know, I'm sure we're going to touch on a little bit about you know the thick of things out west and how many teams are, are in that race. The schedule is playing a huge factor in that right now. And I would expect that probably the first week, second week of January, we're going to have a little bit more clarity and separation because, like you said, that's a brutal stretch for the Kings of kind of the, the elites out west. And if they're able to, to hold their own, remain around 500 or, or at 500 through that stretch, we got to start talking about them as a serious team out west. If they go three and four during this stretch, or excuse me, if they go four and five during this stretch, I'm probably just going to call them a playoff team because yeah. that's just that's just an hellacious uh, gauntlet to go through. Yeah, they will. They will have earned it absolutely. And and I think you know Memphis is going through a, a really similar tough, tough, tough stretch in their schedule. You know they they've lost two uh, three in a row right now, two of which were to Houston and Golden State. And then they're at Portland, at Sacramento, and at the Lakers. I mean, this is a, a tough stretch for them, too. Yeah, and they seem like they're kind of banged up now. Uh, Mike mm-hmm. Conley is dealing with a hamstring injury. Um, Mark Gasol, I don't know if he's battered and bruised, but he all of a sudden can't shoot anymore. It's just yeah. after that, what looked like another... It was like it was just like last season, where it looked like they were just kind of surging at the beginning. And now maybe they're, they're petering out a lot earlier um, than they should be. Perhaps as they get healthy, specifically with Conley getting healthy, even Kyle Anderson's dealing with some hip stuff right now. Uh, that might put them back sort of at the forefront. The the stretch or the the little the little block of the King schedule that I'm looking at in their next upcoming games, and this is just me, and this is a good segue to the next topic. But it's also just me rooting for chaos. I want them so badly to beat the Lakers in in the home and home. Uh, they play yeah. them December 27th in Sacramento and then December 30th in Los Angeles. If they beat them both times, you know that LeBron is going nuclear and something's happening with the Lakers. Yeah, because people just don't respect Sacramento yet. And, and I get why, because they're all super young and it's 
it's been really just two months of 500 basketball. Like it's, that's not like we need to blow up the universe and anoint these guys, anything, but they're, they're pesky and they're sticking around and they play really, really hard. Speaking of the the Lakers though. So LeBron, um, following their loss to, I don't even know why I'm just blind. Oh, following their loss to the nets who are playing really good basketball yeah. right now. Um, he said, and he was axed, so it wasn't this wasn't unsolicited. And I think that's what we need to remember is that when players are talking about other players, very rarely are they just saying it randomly. Um, but he was he openly pondered per ESPN Davis McMenamin about um, the Lakers adding Anthony Davis, and he said that would be amazing. Referring to the Lakers landing Davis through a trade, that would be amazing. Like, duh, that would be incredible. Fairly innocuous, but also weird, just because they share the same agents, and Davis is constantly linked to Boston and Los Angeles. Do you have any strong feelings on on that particular aspect of it, him mentioning Anthony Davis? Is it maybe more telltale that he once again, or this time publicly reiterated, that he would like to play with Carmelo Anthony at some point? Yeah, I think it's a long-term play for LeBron and the Lakers. I don't I really just don't see much that they can accomplish. Um, but, I mean, he'd be an idiot not to try to attract Anthony Davis to play with him because not only is he one of the five best players in the NBA, but he's probably one of the two or three most powerful in terms of holding a franchise in the palm of their hand. I'd say that he and Giannis are really the only two guys right now that are young enough, have proven themselves year after year, and and kind of have the uh, contractual um, – you know, the, the time is on their side and not necessarily with the, the franchise in order to leverage things in their favor. So we have to pay a lot of attention to Anthony Davis if he grows unhappy in New Orleans or something comes to the surface that he wants out. And this is LeBron just being smart and saying, hey, I'm going to be the first one to throw the hat in the ring and say, yeah, we want you. We're going to find a way to get you and see if he can kind of disrupt a little bit of the uh, satisfaction going on in New Orleans right now. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of just pointless to read anything into it immediately because the Pelicans aren't trading Anthony Davis this season. Like we, people talk about it. I know it generates clicks and discussion and all that stuff. They're not, they're not moving him this year. He would have to demand for out, which I just don't think, I don't think he's the type of person to do, but not actually knowing him personally. That's just my guess. So it's more interesting to really watch. You have to look at it from the perspective of what moves might the Lakers or the Celtics make now that could impact their Anthony Davis chase? And then what's happening with the Pelicans that could then impact either positively or adversely Anthony Davis's taste for, for sticking around long-term. Right. And if there's anything we know about Dell Demps, it's that he's willing to throw draft picks at mediocre to just slightly above average role players that are going to be able to help his team make the playoffs, just make the playoffs, not necessarily be a strong contender. So, you know, based on their their front office history, there's no way that they're going to be in sell mode, even if they move back to, you know, a couple games below 500. As long as they're within four or five games of the eight seed in the weeks leading up to the the trade deadline, they're not going to be sellers by any stretch of the imagination, especially not with Anthony Davis. If you had to guess right now, is Anthony Davis taking or declining the the super the designated veteran extension this year, this summer? Excuse I me. Yeah, I have no idea what anybody does with that. It, it, it's been kind of the biggest piece of the last CBA that has backfired against literally everyone. <laughs> uh, like there's just, just it's not worked out well for any player or team that's been involved with it. Uh, well, for the player, I mean, it gets them paid. I guess it works out in that regard. But um, I, my gut tells me he doesn't take it just a little more leverage for him. That's where I'm at as well. And to sort of that end, if and when Anthony Davis hits the trade market this summer, do you subscribe to the idea that the Lakers and the Celtics, however you want to rank them, that they're the one and two in this chase? Or is there something to my thought, which please tell me I'm wrong if I am. I They're definitely up there. But when you look at, what their deals would be built around the Lakers, Brandon Ingram, the Celtics, Jalen Brown, those players are extension eligible this summer. How quickly does new Orleans want to reinvest in someone they're acquiring in a Davis trade? If they're not going the Spurs route with Kawhi Leonard, where yes, DeMar DeRozan isn't going to be a free agent, but he's that immediate all-star that kind of keeps you relevant. And I could see, I could see new Orleans being interested in remaining somewhat relevant. Even after losing Anthony Davis, the Pelicans aren't exactly in a market that can support a long, brutal 
rebuild. And so maybe there will be that some semblance of, of urgency there to do that. But you also do have to play the longer game and, and acquiring these cost-controlled assets is a huge part of any rebuilding process. And a lot of the pieces that, or the primary pieces, I would say, that the Lakers and Celtics would be sending back aren't going to be cost-controlled for that much longer. And then for the Celtics specifically, I think their situation's further complicated by the fact that uh, Memphis's pick, if it, if it conveys to them this season, which it looks like it might, isn't going to be all that high. Uh, if the Kings pick, the Kings pick is going to convey because it's top one protected for them. But if Sacramento makes the playoffs or if they're only giving you, what if it's the 11th or 12th pick? That loses a lot of curb appeal to me if, if I'm New Orleans. And so then that theoretically should open the door for one of these dark horses to emerge where it was, it was like that with Toronto and San Antonio. I know there were chatter among basketball people about Toronto wanting Kawhi and that it became this big deal in Vegas, but they largely, when you looked at the teams that were involved, everyone was talking about the Lakers or the Clippers, maybe some of the, some of the New York teams. Uh, They almost, not that they came out of left field, but they were probably not the first or second choice as a landing spot. And I, I honestly if I had to guess right now, I almost feel like something similar, short of the Celtics getting this fantastic pick from the Kings this year, I could almost see, or being willing to include Jason Tatum, which I don't think they will. Um, no. Short of that, I could almost, I almost want to say that I think the same is going to happen if and when Davis hits the chopping block. Yeah, a couple points to, to make, because you, you brought up a lot of great stuff there, Dan. Uh, number one, when whenever you're a front office and you're trying to think about the best haul that you can get in return for a superstar, you kind of want a little bit of a diversity of assets. You want one guy who's on a contract for maybe one, maybe two years that, that pays him a decent amount of money, but he's not dead weight. He can help you a little bit right now. Number two is you want somebody that's in their first or second year in the league that still has at least two years of a team-controlled small contract asset that you can really get a lot of mileage out of before you have to talk about extending them because that allows you to take the time in the post-superstar realm and look at and say, are we still going to be able to compete and not totally blow it up? Or do we make this guy the kind of franchise centerpiece and retool everything around him? The third thing you look for is draft picks. And that's where you hit the nail on the head right there. Boston blows the Lakers out of the way when it comes to to draft picks because they have potentially four first rounders that could come into their possession this year. And this leads me to kind of my second point about it is looking at the actual 2019 draft and the the players that are available right now. I think it's really, really top heavy, kind of one through five and kind of a crapshoot right now when you're looking kind of six through 20. Like there's a lot of guys that are solid, but have some, some real holes. And I know we're a ways away from really solidifying exactly where everybody in the class is, but I'm not blown away by anybody outside of kind of the the top four or five players talent wise. So if you are a team like new Orleans and you're looking at your hall, you definitely need one of those high value picks in return for Anthony Davis. You can't settle for just, for example, you know, Jalen Brown, um, let's say that they were to move on from Al Horford and, you know, two of the mid-tier picks. Like, you need one of those top five, six picks in the 2019 draft. Yeah, and I guess we could look at which team will win the lottery this year, and then maybe that team or one of the top four or five teams could uh, theoretically get into the trade sweepstakes. Right. Uh, there, A lot of those teams really won't be that impulsive. Atlanta... Maybe Phoenix would be that impulsive. Like the Knicks could definitely be that impulsive. Do you know what's an interesting team? Mm-hmm. If if they're not going to get one of the top five picks in this draft, do you know what becomes what I think a low key under the radar good trade partner for the Pelicans? I'm waiting. The Raptors. The Raptors. Tell me why. If you include you have so you have a bunch of interesting salary filler to really just help make the salaries match. You can include you know. Jonas Valanciunas, depending on whether you're going to keep uh, Miritich or, or Randall, and you can build an offense around um, pick and rolls or pops with him and Drew Holiday, but or mm-hmm. or you have a guy like um, Fred Van Fleet, just these interesting one year contracts that can help you now, not going to break the bank long term, and then you start including you have Siakam, you have Ananobi, both of whom would have two years left on their rookie scale deal, and Toronto could include a couple of future first-round picks. It kind of maxes them out in that department to the hilt, but if you're not going to get 
a ton of cost-controlled assets from the Lakers or Celtics, or you're not going to get you're you're clearly not getting a really high pick from Los Angeles. But if you're not going to end up getting a a high pick from Boston in addition to Jalen Brown and and salary filler and other stuff, that's a team that I could see just wedging its way into the sweepstakes, provided they know that Kawhi Leonard is coming back. Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, that's the caveat right there, right, is it, everything kind of revolves around Kawhi. You don't want to go all in on stripping everybody off and then have Kawhi walk into the sunset in free agency. So it's a delicate line to to walk. But, yeah, that's an interesting interesting concept, Toronto jumping into the, the Anthony Davis sweepstakes. I hadn't really thought about that much. Yeah, and I mean, for, for that part specifically, I think that's a valid concern you have. But my guess would be that any Davis trade sweepstakes would play out after free agency anyway, which right. would give Toronto and other teams clarity on where they stand. Uh, speaking of clarity, we have absolutely none on the Western conference (laughs) there, the Utah jazz. And this sounds, this is just awesome to say they're in 14th place in the West. Uh, but they're, they're only three games under 500. They're 7.5 games out of first place and only 2.5 games out of the playoff picture. I'm just, I don't, I don't, I don't have necessarily a specific question. I'm just wondering, are there teams right now that you can, you know, aside from the Warriors that you can pencil in as playoff locks. And then do you think that there is, that there's going to be a surprise seller as a result of, of this sort of crowded Western conference playoff race towards the trade deadline, just because we can't, even if you're still within proximity of a playoff berth, not every one of these teams can honestly believe that they have a chance to get there. And maybe that creates a nice opportunity for a team that's willing to punt on this season. And if you think that could happen, do you pinpoint any teams as potential examples uh, of that type of situation where where they might be willing to drop out of the playoff race and, and sell off some assets closer to the trade deadline? Yeah. So looking at the top end of the, the question first, who are the teams that are locks? I think there's really only three and to me, it's it's all injury based, right? Like one injury can throw off any of these locks, um, which is crazy to say right now. Which is why so many teams are hanging around and not even willing to think about blowing things up. Um, but it's Golden State, it's Oklahoma City, and it's Denver. To me, those are three teams that again they're the top three in the West right now. Um, but Denver's offense is clicking, and Jokic is been really really good defensively something that we're not talking about a lot this season but probably needs to be said a little bit more he's been awesome um oklahoma city is doing all of this without their best defender in andre robertson and golden state is or any shooting for that matter (laughs) or any shooting like they're they are fantastic right now oklahoma city I've, i've really enjoyed uh watching them play this year because they just they bulldoze they don't give a shit about anything uh, and it's it's a fun style to watch. Vice versa, on the other side of the coin, which teams do I think might separate themselves downward in order to be sellers or based on the way things shake out? Well, we talked about the schedule with teams like Memphis and Sacramento where these next two to three weeks are going to be really, really important for them. Um, I think New Orleans is going to be too stubborn to be a seller, but I see them remaining on the outside looking in pretty much for the rest of the season. I just don't like the shooting or depth that they have there and uh, never been a big fan of what Dell Demps tries to attempt in order to attract some talent around Anthony Davis. The uh, the other teams that I could see are Minnesota. I could see them definitely dropping low and saying, you know, we have a bunch of pretty good talent, but we don't really have one star player. Let's see if we can shop anything out of Taj Gibson's expiring contract or you know, what is it that we're really able to, to pick up in exchange for some of our dead weight right now? Um, and then the last team would be Dallas with Wes Matthews' contract. I think he's definitely a guy that teams are going to call about around the league and, and see if they can get him. Because, again, a scoring wing, 3 and D type of player, easily fits into any scheme, and he's on an expiring. So that would be it for me. The uh... – the Tosh Gibson element's interesting. I never thought about the the Timberwolves. I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. I never really thought about them as sellers mm-hmm. just because they don't have a lot to sell, but he could certainly help uh, a playoff contender. I'm kind of with you on the choices that you selected um, that are probably going to fall out of it. I would probably pencil in one more lock, though, uh, just the Lakers, and that might be just me believing in LeBron, but they've been uh, they've been fine defensively this year, and they they've they, the, the fact that they're not playing their best basketball right now, but the fact they've 
uh, come as far as they they have and that they're in the position that they are right now when they really don't have a ton of shooting still probably bodes well uh, for them long term. And again, they're, they could slip out of the playoff race. Only two games separate them between uh, the Mavericks, who are in ninth right now, um, and they're currently in the fourth seed. But I think they're just going to end up being a lock, and that might just be me uh, subscribing to the LeBron effect. Yeah, there's there's no reason for eternal LeBron optimism to to be denied. He he's earned that right. Um, but I just think that they're one injury away for either Lonzo or Ingram of just being a very average basketball team, regardless of what LeBron is able to do on a nightly basis. That's my only really worry before I say they're locks. I think pretty much every other team that is a lock can withstand one injury, uh, even to a really good player. Maybe Denver can't with Jokic. Um, but well, I think, yeah, I mean, they're yeah. doing what they're doing without Barton, Millsap, and Gary Harris. Basically, even Murray was banged up for a little bit. Right. So that's right. Yeah. And they have they have the second best record in the NBA. So um, you know, again, it's hard to say that they're not a lock. But that's my only hesitation with the Lakers right now is if if Lonzo or Ingram aren't there, they're really really thin. Do you ultimately think though that any team will of the ones you name that they will actually sell? Because I, the catch twenty two of it all is. Yes, I can. If you're, if I'm looking at the Kings, if I'm looking at the Mavericks, um, if I'm looking at the Timberwolves, you know the Pelicans. Even if they drop off, as you said before, they're not going to be sellers. But even teams that uh, could theoretically b- become uh, those yard sale holders, how many of them are actually going to be willing to take on any sort of salary in exchange for pick or prospect compensation? Um, Dallas, we know, will value its cap space. Minnesota probably just. They, they have their own salary. They're not going to have space this year, but when you have right. uh, Carl Anthony Towns' max kicking in alongside Andrew Wiggins, you have to be cost-conscious. The Kings, I can never get a read on them. They probably should. They, even if it's a smaller deal, um, they could probably yeah, – there was a report, I think it was from uh, Windhorst, uh, Brian Windhorst of ESPN, or it was from someone that said they might look to buy at the deadline. They yep. can probably do a little bit of both. Like Maybe you take a flyer on someone like – Courtney Lee, who has a year left on his deal, coming back from injury, and if he plays well, he helps your playoff push. If he doesn't, he only has a year left, and maybe you can get a second-round pick or a prospect for him. Uh, But just as far as the other teams go, it's hard to really imagine anyone, uh, whether it be even if the Clippers, who haven't been playing their best basketball of late, it's just hard to imagine anyone becoming, in the West, um, an actual seller. Even Phoenix has said that they don't want to take on long-term money. Yeah, and, and the crazy part about it, too, is, okay, let's say that one team does kind of fall behind over the next couple of weeks here and imagine themselves a little bit as somebody that can eat up a little bit of salary in exchange for taking assets. Why would they want to trade one of their better players to a Western Conference foe? I think there's right. a lot of, because these teams are so, so, so close in the standings and both short-term and long-term, their outlooks are, it's going to stay this way. Uh, you know, they're going to want to ship their better players if they are getting guys off to the Eastern Conference and keep them away a little bit. And I don't see a lot of a lot of teams out in the East that are going to be able to to be readily buyers. I mean, the top end teams, Toronto, Milwaukee, Philly, Boston, I think they're pretty close to set with with who they are right now. And and everything that they're looking for is going to be smaller veteran pieces. I don't think that they have a lot of room to make any more big deals. Maybe Milwaukee with George Hill. That would be it for me. Uh, Indiana could make some moves, definitely. But beyond that, everybody is such a, a teeter, you know, 500 playoff team that it's hard to picture exactly who's going to be a buyer. So I, I really have no idea what's going to happen with the trade deadline and and who's going to jump into uh, seller status. Yeah, I mean, even you look at teams that could in the East as well, and that's what most that's where most of the salary absorption is probably going to come from. Right, Atlanta. Um, might be a team that's willing to do that. Cleveland's already started doing that, but teams like the Knicks and the Bulls, they probably have aspirations for their cap space this summer. The Knicks more so than the Bulls, since New York has been constantly linked to to Kevin Durant. Mm-hmm. It's and so what does that leave you with? Two, three, maximum of four teams that are going to be uh, legitimate salary sponges and there it's even hard to spot a wild card because the magic would be a team that i think when you look at having evan fournier's deal mozgov's deal that they can talk themselves into taking on a player that goes into next season or even the season after and yet they're hanging around the eastern conferences playoff pitcher right now so even deals that seemed inevitable to me and kind of still do uh the rockets attaching a first to brandon knight the pelicans attaching a first to solomon hill 
it's almost not inevitable because where are you sending them? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and no one has, has stepped up in that regard. I mean, there are a couple teams with some trade chips and trade exceptions. Like Detroit has 7 million laying in their back pocket that expires, I think, like the last day of January from the Blake Griffin deal last year. But even that, you know, vaults them pretty close to luxury tax, if not over luxury tax territory. Like they have to be really, really careful with what they use that for. So I really, I really don't know. Yeah, I think Detroit is like within a half a million dollars of luxury tax right now. So they're just, unless they're sending out salary, I can't even see them making a move. It's, it's really tough. And so I'll, I'll kind of wrap up with this and put you on the spot for, for the Western Conference. You've already named your three locks. Who are your eight teams that you think are getting in? They don't need to be in a, in a seating order. I'm just curious right. as to who you think will actually make the cut. Yeah, all right. I got to sift through this a little bit. Gun to my head a little bit. Denver, Golden State, Oklahoma City, and the Lakers. I'll We're in lockstep as, so far. Yeah, I'll put them as top four. I I think Houston definitely gets in. I, I see they're playing. They've won four in a row. They're just they're going to figure it out. They have too much talent not to. That's five. Uh, I'm hard pressed to go against Utah climbing the ladder too because I I think that, that again they've they've Utah got probably a, a little bit more. Lynn, I've decided by the way. But carry on. Sorry, I'm with your I'm with your co-host Andrew Bailey. I'd love to see them get Kevin Love if he can find himself be healthy. But um, you know, I don't want to um, proliferate proliferate any of his wet dreams right now. Um, <laughs> How much so of an I'm upgrade like, is is Kevin Love coming back from injury over Derek Favors? I think he's a huge upgrade. I think he's become one of the most underrated players in the league because he's played in LeBron's shadow. I mean, That's I fair. could go. I could go into Kevin Love stuff for a long, long time. I absolutely adore him as a player. He's a guy who was a post-up fiend and a guy back to the basket, and he saw that kind of post-up fours were dying and kept evolving his game, and now he's one of the best jump-shooting big men in the league. Like He's an awesome passer. I love Kevin Love. I love him. Um, but, yeah, I think Utah sneaks in there, so that's that's what? That's six? Yep. Oh, hard not to say Portland and the Clippers. I yeah. almost just for the sake of disagreement, I think I'm going to go Spurs instead of the Blazers. I'm with you on the other seven, though. And I've been I've been really hesitant on Portland for years now. I've just I've not loved uh, their their bench is really what it's been for me. Just uh, never been a big fan of of the way that things mesh with their bench. And I think Neil O'Shea has made a couple of of moves that I I might have done a little bit differently were I in his shoes. Um, but they're they're playing well, and I think Zach Collins is is pleasantly surprised me. I was a little bit of a doubter of his, and he's played pretty well this year. I thought he was he was good defensively last year, and Blazers fans gave me shit for saying I was surprised by his defense this year. He was playing more five and didn't have Ed Davis as a buffer, and so I wasn't mm-hmm. sure if his rim protection was going to hold up, and it has, and that's been that's just been, that's just surprised me a little bit, uh, a pleasant surprise, but it was not. I don't know who Zach Collins is. It was just, it seemed like his, I don't want to say his success was completely a matter of circumstance last year, but to all of a sudden go from that to this as a sophomore, um, he's been really good for them. But I I mean, my Blazers takes do not age well. I picked them to miss the playoffs before the season started. They got off to that hot start. I admit I was wrong, and then they, they go and start crapping the bed all over the place. Now I picked them to miss the playoffs as they're playing a, a little bit better. If they start winning some more games on the road, they're, they're probably a solid playoff team. And it's it's really fair to – I think I'm being slightly ignorant with my Spurs pick, just blind faith and, yep. and pop or things working themselves out. It is really fair to worry about San Antonio, which which fucked up the Kawhi Leonard trade in my mind. And it was clear at the time, um, not a shot against DeMar DeRozan, the, uh, the player. It's just that even right down to the way they completely devalued Danny Green and kind of had devalued Danny Green uh, for a while, it's just – they really, they really just, they screwed up there. And uh, Spurs fans have come at me and said, well, how else were they supposed to do that deal without Danny Green's salary filler? If you're giving up a top five player in the NBA and you're not getting one of Toronto's three best prospects, uh, you you can finagle away. Like, get them to take on Pau Gasol's deal. Um, expand, make them expand the deal to include a third team so that you don't have to give up who was, even while he was injured last year, your third most important defender behind Murray and Anderson, and then not only did you lose Anderson uh, to free agency, you also knew you were losing Kawhi Leonard, who's instantly your best defender. So it just 
th- that lack of foresight it was just yeah. it was just mind boggling to me. I mean, think about where the Spurs would be if they had acquired Siakam instead of Portal. Yeah, like that. That's that's probably a difference in probably both team seasons a little bit right now. Just that one detail. So I, I agree with you. Um, the the issue with San Antonio for me is their defense. I mean, uh, they're they do not look like a Spursian defensive team. And a lot of that has come from a switch to playing LaMarcus Aldridge more at the five. Like they, they have some kinks that they need to work out with that. But they do not look the same defensively as they, they always have. And that's the worry for me. Offense, it's, they're, they're going to be fine. But, uh, yeah, defense, I, I just I don't see them making enough uh, wins over, over tight opponents and winning tight games because of that. That would be oh, this is fun to ask a coach because I've said, and I don't mean to be too cavalier about saying teams need to shoot more threes. And the Spurs are, uh, well, they're not actually shooting well from from mid range this year. They're they're twenty ninth in mid range percentage according to, um, cleaning the glass. But they cater to their personnel on offense, which is fine. I get that they don't have a ton of high volume shooters on their team. At the same time, if you're not good at the defensive end. Upping your three-point volume is a way of offsetting that talent variance when it's very clear that you're not going to be a good defensive team. And that's why I have such um, a problem with the Spurs. Is, and I was looking at the wrong metrics. The Spurs are shooting uh, just fine for mid-range this year. Uh, they're fifth in all mid-range percentage. I was looking at their defense. So it's if the fact that they're 30th um, in three-point frequency, uh, even 27th in corner three-point frequency – it's just a number that I want to see come up if you're not going to be good on the defensive end. And especially when it's not like you're shooting a ton at the rim either. And that's something you can't really change when, when you look at your personnel. You can't um, just install or conjure more dribble drivers uh, in your offense. I, I totally get that. Or better cutters. So three-point volume to me, upping it is just a way of kind of neutralizing that talent variance you you now have on the defensive end. And the Spurs, to me, particularly when they're shooting the ball well from three, have not taken advantage of that nearly enough. Yeah, it's you know it's a delicate push-pull that I go through. I'm a big proponent of the three-point shot. I, as you know, being a more of a statistics guy and 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 thinking about uh, ideal shot profiles based on expected returns. Three pointers tend to be a really, really valuable shot in that regard. Um, San Antonio, yeah, they're they're really low in their three point frequency. They are the best team in the league three point percentage wise. They're doing a great, great, great job shooting from deep. So it's hard to say that you know they are taking the wrong shots for them. Uh, because at the end of the day, as a coach, I think you have to take a look at your roster, your strengths, and just put your players in the best position for them to succeed, regardless of what your kind of overarching thoughts are about shot profile and shot selection. If you want to be a team that shoots a lot of threes, but you don't have a lot of good three-point shooters, it almost doesn't make sense to to build a, a scheme that's that's a, you know revolving around that shot. So. I don't have as much of an issue with their shot selection, um, but for me, it, it's the elimination of the 15 to 19 foot mid-range jumpers, where if you shoot those at a really, really high frequency, why not just step back three or four more feet? Um, because I don't think that the field goal percentage difference is really that great there, especially with the guys on their roster. Like I think Aldridge can start shooting threes a little bit more, whereas he's pretty much just settling for 18 footers after 18 footer after 18 footer um so i mean there's there's a little bit of of tinkering that i would do if i were popovich with it but we know his stance on three pointers and again i I think their their roster is a lot of guys that are good mid-range shooters DeRozan, aldridge rudy gay they have guys that that's a really good shot for and it's probably going to be a higher percentage shot for them than if they are just to to settle a little bit from three so i don't hate it I think there's room for improvement, but I, I don't hate what they're doing there. That was actually a good point about kind of moving in when you're looking at it. I mean, it doesn't matter because they're first across all mid-rangers in frequency, short, mid-range, long, mid-range. Right. Uh, I would probably lean more towards your side where being indifferent, uh, maybe not necessarily supporting it, but being okay with it. If this was them saying, you know, we don't want to shoot more threes because then it's going to make it, if we miss a bunch, it's going to be harder on our defense. Um they'll be even worse because we're missing three pointers. But at the same time, right now, San Antonio is allowing per unpredictable more points per possession after a made shot 
than they are after a missed shot. So it's, again, upping the three-point volume could warp those numbers, but it's just not, for them, just the way that they've been defensively this year, and as you said, taking so many long mid-rangers, I would like to see them increase that three-point volume, if not by an obscene amount, at least to the point where they're closer to the league average. Yeah, and, and again, the, the struggles that they're having defensively are independent of their shot selection. I don't think that there's a, a huge variance or, or anything that comes from you know, exactly what it is that they're doing um, in terms of, I mean, their transition defense is really poor. I'm looking at it right now on Synergy. They're 29th in the league in terms of points per possession giving up in transition. So they, they do have a lot of work that they need to do there. Um, but like you said, they, they give up almost more after a, mace, a make than they do a miss. And that's that's really, really concerning. Uh, they would be a team that would, if they could, uh, and I don't know what type of trade assets they have. They really don't have any uh, that could that need to make a trade. Uh, they do not make midseason trades, though. I believe, nope. unless I'm mistaken, the, uh, the, the last midseason trade they made came in 2014 when they when they traded uh, Nando DiColo for Austin Day. I'm pretty sure that was the last midseason trade they made, but per- I might be wrong there. Yeah, I mean the the Spurs, the Warriors, the, they're not teams that are interested in kind of shaking it up that way. They would rather just bring in one veteran, not give up any assets, and and be really selective about it than a trade where you kind of almost like a, a negotiation with a lawyer. I mean, in a settlement, you know, you're just trying to do something where both sides feel like they lose equally. I think a lot of times that happens in trades when you just negotiate and negotiate and negotiate and everybody leaves kind of getting what they want but not really getting what they want. And uh, avoiding trades altogether is one way to make sure that you're you're pretty firmly in control of exactly everything on your roster. Well, I will uh, stop commandeering your time there. Thanks for doing this as always. For anyone who needs a reminder on the playoff teams we picked, both of us think the Nuggets, Warriors, Thunder, Lakers, Clippers, Jazz, and Rockets are going to make the playoffs. Adam's eighth team, not in any particular order, is the Blazers. I have the Spurs because I'm a glutton for punishment, even though I just spent the past five or, or seven minutes just ripping ripping them apart. Um, that'll do it for us, though. If you want to follow Adam on Twitter, and you, you absolutely should, a great basketball mind, he is at Spinella14, that's S-P-I-N-E-L-L-A, 14 you can read his stuff at the basketball writers he's publishing great content over there they are at b-ball writers so follow them there he's also in case you need to know the washington and jefferson assistant men's basketball coach we look forward to um more of his insight in the future if he will be so kind as to continue coming on this podcast if you want to follow me on twitter i'm at dan favale f-a-v-a-l-e andy is at andrew d bailey Hardwood Knox is at Hardwood Knox. You can also follow NBA math at NBA underscore math. Until next time, I leave you with a shout out to Kyle Anderson and nobody else. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.